Well, when we consider the book of Ruth, we, we are called to consider how God acts in the trivial and ordinary things of life and overrules to bring about his great purpose for his own glory. We, we sometimes think of miracles and supernatural uh, undertakings uh, of God and we, we marvel at, at those things. But among other things that the book of Ruth uh, teaches us is that God is just as marvelously at work through the ordinariness of our lives. And that is equally marvelous. The implications of the story of Ruth, and I trust that most of us know the, the whole story, not just the first chapter, but even as you read through the first chapter, you start to see gleanings or glimmers of this. But the implications of the whole of the story of Ruth are breathtaking for us as believers. And they are encouraging for us. They are the, those implications that tell us that what the Lord is doing in the life of, of, of each and every one of us is bigger than what we think, always. And you might say, oh, you're saying that. You're trying to bring us into, the, into this particularly great story of Ruth and, and, and you're trying to, to encourage us. But I don't see myself as a Ruth or as a Naomi. I don't see myself in that way. Brother and sister, if you're a believer, those small things that happen in your life, they are a part of the great story of salvation in the world. You're a part of this great story that is bigger than anything else that we see in the world happening today. The wars and the, and the, and, and the, and the financial crisis, or those things that fill our newspapers, the story of the church, of the advancement of, kingdom of, Christ, of the kingdom of Christ is much greater. And yes, it doesn't uh, produce headlines, but when it all is said and done, at the end of this, of this life that we live, at the end of this age that we are going through, when finally the, uh, the fullness of time comes, you will realize that even the most ordinary things that have happened in your life, just like in the life of Naomi and Ruth, worked to bring about something that is unfathomable. By the end of this series, I'm convinced that even as we consider this, this, these four chapters, we will only have scratched the surface of how this applies in our lives. We are a part of the kingdom of Christ. We are a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a story that will be told for all eternity, long after uh, the, the, the great names of this world have, have come and gone. We are the bride of Christ. So that all those things that we do in connection to our faith, in obedience to Christ, all those things that happen, they are not trivial. They might seem ordinary and normal to, to an undiscerning eye. But we as Christians, we need to look at them and understand that something is more something is happening that is more significant than just the, tri the trivialities of our ordinary day-to-day -day life. 
And we are not to be distracted by that. We are not to be distracted by the, the way that this world uh, amuses and entertains itself with trifling things, sports. If you think about it in this way, and I'm talking to, to the Christians more here, and uh, to, to, if you think about it in this way, you realize how weird it is that we, can, that we have sections in our newspapers that talk about sports and about uh, the result that happened in a friendly match between uh, two clubs in uh, somewhere or, or, the, or the, the whole celebrity uh, uh, sections in, in magazines. How weird it is that that takes up so much of our time in the world, that that is so, uh, so pervasive Let us not allow the world to dictate how we engage with it. The book of Ruth teaches us that God's purpose for his people is to connect us to something that is greater than any of us, that greater than ourselves. God wants us to know, and that's part of the message of Ruth or the application of Ruth. God wants us to know that when we follow him, when we live a life of obedience to him, that our lives mean much more than just what we are going through at that moment. That in some way, all of these things will work for the glory of the Son of God, the most beautiful being in the whole of the universe. For us as Christians, everything we do in our life, no matter how small or how insignificant, is a part of this puzzle, mosaic that God is building for the glory of his own son to honor him. That God is painting to display the greatness of his power and wisdom to a world and to the principalities and powers of the heavenly in the heavenly places. You look at Ruth, and we know that in this story there is uh, an ending that is glorious. It is through this the lineage of Naomi and Ruth that uh, the, the, the king of Israel is to come, David, and the great king of kings is to come. But it's as you, as you think, as you look at Ruth, her faithfulness to serve her widowed mother-in-law, a gleaning in the field, a relationship that, for all intents and purposes, for Naomi and for Ruth, the relationship with Boaz, that seemed completely normal. Ordinary marriage, nothing special. They never knew how this whole connected and painted a, a picture for the glory of, of God. Having a baby. We need to remind ourselves that they are all a part of something. These are, were all a part of something bigger, a greater plan that God had. And we are a part of that plan. And we are, in our ordinary day-to-day -day lives, doing things that will work for the for the glory of God. Enough for the introduction here as we get to the end of Ruth chapter 1. Today, as we will pick up where we left off uh, last two weeks ago, uh, and we will pick up when uh, 
Ruth uh, entreated Naomi, pleaded with Naomi not to, to tell her to leave her anymore. And they departed. Naomi stopped her mouth. Naomi gave in. And we get to verse 19. And today we'll look at three facts that stand out in, from verse 19 to verse 22. First is the, a public perplexment. I don't even, I, I could have checked if it was a real word in the English dictionary, but being perplexed, there was a perplexment by the public. There was, number two, personal pain. And number three, a particular providence. So firstly, public perplexment. Naomi and Ruth carry on on their way. Orpah sta stayed behind. And this drew the attention of all this, the whole of the, of the village, of the city. It says that now the two of them went, went until they came to Bethlehem, Bethlehem. And it happened when they had come to Bethlehem that the whole city was excited because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? There was this sense of per being perplexed, surprised. There was, there's this stirring up in the, in the city as they saw Naomi come back. But the notoriety, the perplexment was, was not really because of the success that Naomi had uh, achieved in, in uh, Moab. As we saw in the last two sermons in, in this series, she actually lost everything. She went to, to Moab with a husband and two sons, and she came back a widow with no sons. She returned, she went with some measure of financial uh, capacity or capability, and she returned poor, a widow, and she returned with two death certificates, you could say, in her hand of her two sons instead of returning with her two sons. So what caused this astonishment, this commotion, this perplexment in, in, uh, in Bethlehem? It's not that Naomi was there, but that she was there with so much grievance, so many losses, so many tragedies and disasters. I assume, as I read through this, that perhaps this was not Naomi's plan. I wonder if she really wanted to, to come into to Bethlehem and, and kind of go unnoticed. I know I would get, him, get back to that city after, after all that had happened with, with that shame of uh, returning in that situation. You kind of want to just put your hoodie on and just hope that no one sees you. But everyone saw we're told that she arrived and everyone was stirred. Everyone was excited. Perhaps for those of us who, who live in cities, this is weird. Why, why, why would the whole city uh, know this? But this was not a big city. This would be what we would today call perhaps a village. And if you have lived or been in a village, you know how uh, strangers and foreigners kind of stand out as a sore thumb. My, my mother, she bought a, a, a house to restore in the, in the village where she was born before her mom and dad 
and her siblings moved to Lisbon when she was young, and she bought there uh, a house there in the middle of nowhere. Honestly, the, it's away from everything. The closest off-license is half an hour drive away. That's how in the middle of nowhere it is. And it's, it's not in an idyllic, scenic place, so you don't get a lot of tourists and, and travelers coming through there. Uh, but my mother was adamant the, a few weeks ago when we were there. We needed to go and see the house. She wanted to show us uh, her, her property. So we had to go and we went. And as soon as we turned from the main road and start going up the, the mountain, the hill where the village is on top, you start to notice that everyone's looking at you. It's a weird car. First of all, the, the, the steering wheel is on the wrong side for them. But, but it's, it's a car that they don't know. Everyone knows that you're coming, and as you're arriving, park your car, you, 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 you get out of the car, you look to the, the house uh, uh, up opposite on the street, and you start seeing a, an old woman peeking and, and looking, and, and that's what happens in villages. Nothing goes unnoticed. Anything out of the ordinary, everyone immediately knows. We then went to see uh, uh, my old great-grandfather's house, or grandmother's house, and, and as we get up there, everyone already knew that we were in the, in the village. It was still a, a kilometer distance away, but as we get there, everyone already knew who we were, what we were doing there. They knew that I was from the UK, because the car says uh, that I'm from the UK, and everyone was already aware of what was happening. And that's what happens here at Bethlehem. There was no way that Naomi would get to Bethlehem and go unnoticed. There is no way that she would get unnoticed. As she was getting to the village of Bethlehem, I'm sure that the women and the, and the men as well, but here we're talking about the women, uh, that the women were already talking. I think that's Naomi. Is that Naomi? Oh, it does look like her. Maybe someone came to her and asked her, Is that you, Naomi? Oh, long time, no, I haven't seen you. And that's when we get to the personal pain that she has. She says in verse 20, in verse 21, that she says to them, do not call me Naomi anymore. Call me bitter. Call me Mara. For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Naomi's first act as she gets to Bethlehem is kind of to change her name. She no longer wanted to be known as Naomi. Naomi, if you remember back in the first uh, sermon of this series, I, I, I mentioned Naomi means to be pleasant, to be happy, but she's no longer happy or pleasant or sweet. She is Mara. She's bitter. She's a bitter old lady. Aren't they a joy to be around? Um, but she, that's what she is. She has this deep sense of self-pity. She wanted everyone to know how much pain she was in, how much bitterness and how much sadness was in her. She no longer wanted to bear a name. There was a denial of what she felt. And let's be fair to Naomi. Before we come to analyze the morality of how she felt, let's be fair to her. Let us put ourselves in the position of Naomi. We would be bitter too. Imagine that. Imagine 10 years after you left from, from Bethlehem to Moab, returning without your husband, without your children, and having to go, through, to go through all of those places where you created so many 
fond memories, the place where your husband proposed to you. I don't know how the, the, the whole proposing thing, uh, well, it, it wasn't the get out on your knee, I'm sure, but uh, where having to go through that place where uh, she first uh, had a courtship with, with, with Elimelech, those places where she took her kids in the village of Bethlehem to, to play the, by the water well, having to go to those places and having to remember all those things, seeing her best friend when she was a young girl all married with children and all the, the children that 10 years ago were small little babies and now they're all grown up and how she felt bitter. Let's, let's not bash Naomi because we probably would be as bitter as she is. But we need to consider is the feeling that she has morally acceptable? She says that it was God. She complains. She says, I went full. I had everything. And now the Lord has brought me back home again empty. Don't call me Naomi anymore. The Lord has testified against me. And the Almighty has afflicted me. I'll tell you. I'm, not, I'm no longer happy or pleasant. I'm bitter. And I'll tell you why. It's because El Shaddai, the Almighty, has made my life very bitter. She looked back at her past and she said, I have no reason to rejoice. I have no reason to be happy. And it is, it is all because of God, she says. The tragedies that fell upon our life had a cause and a causer. And it was all because of God, she says. She said that God had given her not happiness, verse 20, but bitterness. That God was not with her, but against her. Verse 21, she says, he is, he is testified against me. God is not for me. God is against me, she says. The Almighty, the El Shaddai, the all-powerful God, used his power to bring me low and, and to destroy all my happiness. That's quite a thing to say. First of all, let's be fair again to Naomi. Her theology is not completely wrong. She's not saying it was luck or chance that these things happened. She is sure that God is above it all. She, she does not deny that God exists or that God is sovereign. She does not deny that God has afflicted her. And again, in all fairness, this is something that we need to, and I say it respectfully and reverently because I don't, I don't want you to take the, the wrong impression. We need to commend. Even in our own day, we have this wishy-washy evangelical view of God that does not allow for this high view of God that Naomi has. The problem with Naomi's theology is not that she... she she takes those boxes right. The problem is that she has, had forgotten of another great attribute of God, the goodness of God. She was impugning that God was good. God has been bad to me. He's been evil. She forgot the story of Joseph. I'm not going to say she forgot what Paul said in Romans 8 because she didn't know what Paul said in Romans 8. 
That was a few centuries later. But she forgot the story of Joseph. If nothing else in, in, in the history of the people of Israel up until then would work, the story of Joseph would teach her that actually God, in all the afflictions that go through the life of someone, works those things for God. And she forgot all about that. Being sold, Joseph being sold into slavery. Joseph being uh, accused of something he didn't do and being put into prison in a foreign country. Being framed as an adulterer by an adulteress. Joseph too had every reason to be bitter, like Naomi. Joseph too had every reason to say that all, the, the almighty El Shaddai has dealt bitterly with me. But unlike Naomi, Joseph kept his faith. And God turned it all, not because he kept his faith, but he kept his faith that God would turn it all for good, for his personal good, for the good of his people, for the good of, it, of the nation of Israel. As for you, as Joseph said to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but the Lord meant it for good. Naomi is right to believe that God is sovereign. The God of the Bible, the God we serve, he is a sovereign God. Naomi is right to believe that God is a, a, a God that has a hand in every single molecule of this universe. That there is not a rebellious particle, speck of dust or atom in this universe that is outside of his control. But Naomi forgot. Might I say what we often forget is that God is good and that God is working something out even of, of our afflictions and even out of our pain. That's what she forgot. She felt like a prisoner of God. She felt like someone who was under the wrath of the Almighty God. That only, the only thing that God had left for her was a portion to drink of the cup of suffering. Another thing to note before we, before I, we go to the third point is that in all of this, and I think this is relevant, although it's an implied point, there is absolutely no brokenness or repentfulness in Naomi over her experience in Moab. She doesn't seem to realize that she also has done, that, not also, that she has done wrong. She may have been returning to the land of, of God, to the, to, the, to the Lord's land in, in body, but she was not returning to the Lord at all at this moment. She did not have a contrite heart. She was bitter. She was Mara. That's what she was. And again, this word Mara, for those of us perhaps that know or teach Sunday school, this is a better known story. I'm I assume that this is a story that is a part of the curriculum of the Sunday school. But you know, there is another Mara in, in the Old Testament. When the people of God le uh, were led by God through the wilderness, or through the, the Red Sea into the wilderness, not a, not a few years later, just a few weeks, days later, 
they came to a place called Mara, where the waters were bitter and they grumbled and they complained, they were bitter. And I think we're, we're being asked to put these two things together. Here is Naomi coming out of the, the, the foreign country, being led by God, but she, there is still a bitterness, there is still a grumbling element to what she is doing. She is grumbling against God. Like her ancestors, Naomi Hart was angry with God for the way her life was turning out. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm all in the, we're, I'm empty in this place, and says the Israelite in the wilderness. We're empty in this place. We're, we were much better off in, in Egypt. We're empty here. Not realizing that the Lord was leading them there. That God has a good, sovereign plan for all of that. They got, they got all uh, despondent and all sad when they heard the news about the promised land. Not realizing that God is sovereign to undertake and to, to put them in that promised land. No matter what kind of people are there. And, but they, that is the case. They, they look at their current situation and we, they become despondent. And they take their eyes off the good God that they have. It's Peter, isn't it? It. Peter, when he gets, steps out of the boat into the waters, he starts getting all concerned about his circumstances. He takes his eyes of Christ and he sulks, sinks, and he struggles. Naomi, like a prodigal daughter that she is, was, only, was back only because she didn't have, see any prospect of survival in in. Uh, in, among the pigs in Moab, she only came in body. She made her journey home, but her spirit was as far away from God as it was in Moab. But we see a particular providence. That's the third point. Despite Naomi's adverse circumstances and even bitter feelings, turbulent feelings that she had, she arrived at Bethlehem we read in verse 22, just at the beginning of the barley harvest. And let me just point out this, and that's part of the reason why we read the whole chapter. Read verse 1. Now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And then jump to, verse, to the end of verse 22. Not even verse 22, to the end of verse 22. The first, the last, the first and the last sentence of the, chapter 1. Now they came to Bethlehem. At the beginning of the barley harvest, the famine has ended. The Lord is at work. And the same God that was providing for the people was certainly capable of providing for Naomi. She probably did not know this. She probably did not see, this, see it in this way. She certainly wasn't see it in, seeing it in this way. But there is this introduction to the next chapter that is moving from the emptiness that we see to the fullness that is coming. It's kind of like a, the, the, when you're, you watch a, a movie, and, or not, not so much a movie, but a, a TV show. The, the great TV shows are those that end on the, on the cliffhanger. As you move from, from this first section, in, in our Bibles, I, I think very well divided in chapter 1 and chapter 2, although 
We know the chapters are not inspired, but this is a first section that we are meant to, to know that, okay, this act pauses and we're going to go somewhere else. But even as you end this first section, there's this cliffhanger or this, this glimmer of a ray of sunshine peeking through, telling you that there is something coming, that God is at work, that the Lord has remembered his people and that in the same way that the Lord has remembered these people, that he is remembering Naomi, even though Naomi doesn't know it. And that is the sheer grace of God, that even Naomi is not really understanding and, and, and she's uh, bitter, that the grace of God is even greater than her bitterness. That should bring encouragement to all of us in, our, in the midst of our trials and troubles. The very hand of providence had brought them from Moab to Bethlehem just at the right time, at the barley harvest. And we know what's going to happen, the gleaning on the field, the just so happens that in the next chapter we, we read, the, the oh, by chance almost, she was gleaning in, in, in the field of this man called Boaz. It was by chance. It says... But this couple returning to Bethlehem, this bitter, afflicted woman and her daughter-in-law, that is a Moabitess, Moabitess, or I don't know how to pronounce it, the Moabitess. Notice as well that Ruth doesn't come into play in, in chapter 1, at the end of chapter 1. It's like she's being ignored by the whole of Bethlehem. The whole of Bethlehem has, wants nothing there to do with her. And to be fair, we understand why. Culturally, because she was a Moabitess, she was, was uh, sticking out as a sore thumb in the, in the promised land. Someone said it, and per permit me to quote it, as they said it, she was like a... a a bacon roll in a, in a bar mitzvah. She doesn't belong there. Why are you here? She's kind of like being ignored, but the Lord has his purpose. The Lord gave her and brought her there. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Perhaps she could not really know me, see all these things. She was not meant to see it, but we are meant to learn from it. And, she, and we are meant to Understand that even in the most bitter, frowning, to use the words of, of Cooper, Cooper, even in the most frowning of providence, there is something of a smiling face behind all of that. That is the point of the book of Ruth, one of the points of the book of Ruth. Even in the frowning providences of our ordinary life, there is something of a smiling face that works to complete this puzzle, this mosaic or this uh, stained glass window that God is building, constructing for the glory of his name. Naomi's problem, like the struggle many of us experience in the dark moments of our lives, and when we imagine and worry about the worst possible scenario, when we're not called to worry about those things. We often do do it this, don't we? Especially the, in this modern day culture, we are almost predisposed and, 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 and forced 
to, to worry about all kinds of things, sometimes even contradictory things. I'm worrying about this, and I'm worrying about this. Those two things cannot happen at the same time, but I need to worry about something, otherwise I'm not normal. And we persuade ourselves that God has abandoned us, that God is not concerned, that God is not in control, that God does not care about what is happening in this particular uh, district of London um, to this certain man or woman. We, can, we, we convince ourselves that God does not care. But God does care. God cares. God is in control. And Jesus himself said, which of you by being anxious can add a single hour to the span of life? If only, if only Naomi could see what was about to happen, I'm sure she wouldn't have been so bitter. If Naomi had access to the rest of the story, I promise you, I'm certain of this, Naomi would be over the moon, rejoicing, because she knows what, what's the purpose of all of this. Nowadays, in heaven, where she is, in the presence of God, knowing what happened and what the Lord brought about, I'm sure she's no longer bitter. She's again pleasant and full of happiness and even thankful that the Lord has granted to her the honor of being a part of this great history of the coming of the Son of Man, the man-child, the greatest King, our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure that in some, in some way, if she, at this time, if she knew what was, the Lord was bringing about, she would quote the, the whole of the hymn of Cowper, if she knew it, if it was available to her. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust in him for his grace. Behind the frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And bitter might be the, can someone help me? The, the bud, oh no, bitter might be the... The bud, may have a bitter taste. The bud yes, but sweet may, will be the flower. Yes, the bud had a terribly bitter taste for her. But how sweet was the flower that came out of it. I had a few points of application, but I, I'm not going to go through them. I'll, I'll give you the headings. Perhaps the headings will encourage you to consider. Four points quickly, just the headings, no, no exposition of the application. First, let's stop complaining. Let's stop complaining about the adversities that we face. And let's look at the good things that the Lord has done, is doing, and will do for us. Secondly, again, I, I would want to add some more to this, but secondly, let's stop looking at God as the one who is fighting against us. And this I'm talking against, uh, again, I'm talking to brothers and sisters. There is a sense if you're in sin, the Lord is against you. If you're unrepentant, the Lord is not for you, the Lord is against you. But to Christians, let's stop looking at God as one who is against us. And I know we are too sophisticated to say it out loud, but sometimes in the way that we act, in the way that we feel, we, we act and feel like the Lord is against us. Let's see him as the one who is fighting for us, for us and with us. Number three, let's stop thinking that because we are going through a trial, our destiny is to suffer the rest of our lives. That's what Naomi thought. 
At this moment, if you'd ask her, she, she would say, look at my perspectives for life. And again, I said I would have expounded. Look at my perspectives. I'm going to suffer for the rest of my life. My life. Me and this Moabitess daughter-in-law, we're going to have to beg our way to the, through the rest of our lives. There's absolutely no hope. Suffering is all I know and all that I will know. But little did she understand that God wasn't at work. Let us not fall into that same trap. Fourthly and finally, let us stop looking at the tribulations of life as if it is a curse from God. Again, for believers, it is never a curse. Our Lord Jesus Christ took the curse upon that tree. Tribulation for us is not a curse. It is a blessing. And I know it is hard, but it is a blessing. It is something that is God-given. God Count it all joy, James says. Count it all joy when you undergo, when you suffer various trials. Why? Because James knows the countercultural, the, the almost impossible to grasp uh, idea that God uses even tribulations, temptations, even, even adversities for the good of those who love God. And if you're not a Christian, let it be known to you that there is a way. There is a way that you can say that God is for you. At this moment, he is not for you. You're in your sins. God is an enemy, and you are an enemy to God. But what I can tell you is that if you turn from your wicked ways to trust in the Lord... It doesn't matter who you've been, where you've been, how much time you've spent in Moab, how much time you've spent in sin, the kind of sins you committed, that through Jesus Christ, the son of Ruth, the, the son of David, the king of kings, through him, there is forgiveness of sins. That if you trust that he is the son of God, that he lived and died for his sins on the cross, to bear your punishment, if you believe and thank him for it, if you are obedient to him, when he tells you to repent, I, can, I tell you, your sins will be blotted away. The wrath of God that was coming upon you goes upon him, and he is no longer a God against you. He becomes a God for you because you're united with Christ and you enjoy the, all the rich blessings that he has to give. 2,000 years ago, the Lord Jesus, this same Lord Jesus that I preached to you, he told a story, a beautiful story, perhaps the, the most beautiful story, short story ever told, someone called it. The story of a boy who left his home, he left his dad, and he went to live in a foreign country. And after uh, spending everything he owned, winding up in a, in a place that he never thought he would be, he returned home. And Jesus tells the story that as he returns home, he finds a father not, ag not against him, not upset with him, not bitter against him. But if, as he returns home, hoping to, to just have a little bit of the breadcrumbs that fall from the table, he finds a father that embraces him, that loves him, that gives him grace, a father that forgives him and restores him. And that is the story of the blessing that you can have if you come to Christ. That's what you need. The question is, will you come? May the Lord grant that we would all come to Christ. 
for fresh mercies and grace for us in the day.